Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note, we have a new book out called Understanding Viruses. It's a compilation of 100 interviews I did with virologists, and I boiled down the most difficult questions and then re-asked 25 of the top ones, uh, in my estimation. We created a book where you have question, and then you have an answer from four or five different virologists, next question, four or five answers. And I think the topics covered in there are just very difficult, and it's going to take decades to really understand them. And therefore, I think the book's going to be a good contribution to people's understanding of viruses and, and help them ask questions that could impact the field positively. So if you're interested in it, go to Amazon, type in Finding Genius, and you'll see the book right there. So today, my guest is Noor Siddiqui. She's the CEO and founder of Orchid Health. The website is orchidhealth.com and orchid is like the flower, O-R-C-H-I-D. So Noor, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Oh, no problem. Instead of bumbling through what you do, I'd rather you describe it. So so please tell me, uh, you know, of Orchid Health, what do they do? Yeah, so Orchid helps couples have healthy babies. So what we've done is we've built a brand new first-of-its-kind genetic test for couples who are planning on having a child soon. And what we do is we analyze both partners' DNA and identify the disease risk that's most likely to impact their future child's health. So unlike other tests, we look for the most prevalent conditions, so things like cancers, heart disease, schizophrenia, diabetes, so the conditions that really matter to the vast majority of families. And unlike 
most genetic tests, you can actually do something about the results that you get. So one of the options that we offer after you do our couple report is that you can actually follow up and elect to do our embryo health report, where we actually quantify the level of risk present in each embryo so that a couple can select the healthiest embryo to implant. And yeah, sort of the, the main mission behind ORCID is that we want to give parents um, more peace of mind and better chance of a healthy life for every single child. So what, uh, tell me about this genetic test. What What's currently out there and how is your genetic test different or more comprehensive? Sure. Yeah. So essentially most genetic tests that uh, people have heard of, so maybe something like 23andMe or Ancestry or even carrier screening are looking at a really small fraction of the genome. So they're actually only looking at 2% or or less of your genome. So in contrast to that, ORCID is sequencing 100% uh, of your genome. So you can sort of think about the difference as when you look at a textbook, are you looking at the the chapter list? Are you looking at, um, you know, the first few pages or are you reading the entire textbook? So that's one of the the main differentiators is that uh, ORCID doesn't cut corners we're sort of interested in giving couples the highest fidelity, most accurate information available. And that starts with sequencing the entire genome. Uh, the other main differentiator is the actual uh, diseases that we're screening for. So other preconception testing. So carrier screening is looking at really rare genetic conditions. So these are things where there's a one in a thousand, one in 10,000, one in a million chance of occurring in a future child or in a future family. So it's really rare conditions like Prader willies that you probably haven't heard of. In contrast, ORCID is looking at the most prevalent conditions in, in America and around the world. So things like heart disease and cancer and diabetes. So the main differentiator here is that it hasn't been possible to measure genetic susceptibility for these conditions before because they're complex. So complex meaning there's many dozens to millions of variants that are collectively driving risk for these diseases. So for for old school genetics, which is sort of what's been around for the last 10 years or so, um, it's just looking at single gene diseases. So there's one gene, it causes the, the disease, it's generally pretty high penetrance, meaning there, there's not very much ambiguity about whether or not this uh, gene you know, definitively causes the disease. So in contrast, what's really exciting in sort of the latest in genomics medicine is this ability to measure and stratify risk. So genetic risk is different than a diagnosis. It means that someone at elevated genetic risk is going to get the disease at you know, two, three, four, five times the rate uh, of average. It's a predisposition. It means that it's more likely to affect you, but it's not a, a diagnosis like something like Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis, where the, the, having the gene definitively means you have the disease. Yeah, but how do people treat predispositions? Uh, some people I would think would freak out if they have any predisposition to something like Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Some may take it emotionally and intellectually and process it properly, but like, what have you noticed? How do people respond? Yeah, so I think people respond really, really differently. So some people, if you tell them that they're at you know 5x risk for something like schizophrenia or something like uh, heart disease, they'll be you know extremely concerned and they'll want to do something. And that's kind of why we developed the um, Embry report is so that if couples are really concerned about a specific disease that runs in their family and they want to mitigate genetic risk, that's actually possible today. It hasn't been possible before because we weren't able to measure risk accurately for these diseases. And we also weren't able to sequence with high fidelity a really small sample like like an embryo. So for some parents and for some couples, they're really, you know, they've seen the disease firsthand in their family, either through a sibling or a parent or they themselves, and they're really motivated and activated to to, um, mitigate risk via uh, embryo prioritization. And for other couples, you know, they they just want to be informed. They're sort of you know, there's, there's information seekers, they want to be prepared. And it's not about the desire to, to do IVF necessarily, but more it's the desire to be prepared going into a pregnancy and being able to optimize a, a child's health. So, you know, some people are going through these really extensive diagnostic odysseys 
um, you know, not finding out about, um, you know, the true cause of, of symptoms for, you know, for sometimes decades, right? People, I, I have friends who are in their 30s who are finding out that, uh, you know, that the actual source for their, um, for their tiredness and grogginess was, was type 1 diabetes, and they were just misdiagnosed all through their life. So understanding your genetic risks means is that you can sort of shortcut a lot of these diagnostic odysseys. It means that you can be more proactive and advocate for yourself in the healthcare system and say that, hey, I know I'm at an elevated risk. I want to get preventative screening earlier, or I want to monitor my biometrics. I want to optimize my diet. There's you know, so much you can do with the information rather than you know, just, just flying blind and waiting for our uh, reactive health healthcare system to attempt to uh, repair something that's already um, you know, in, in the advanced stages. Well, okay. So this is only for in vitro fertilization couples. I mean, if I don't even know how a regular couple would, I mean, well, no, 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 no. So, so, I, yeah. so, so, so let me explain. So, so there's two sides to the product. So we have a couple report, which means that uh, just any couple who's planning on conceiving can just spit in a tube, send us their saliva sample. We sequence their entire genome of both the male partner and the female partner. And then we return three reports to them. One report that gives their combined genetics, so the result for their future child, and then uh, one report for each individual partner. So the male partner's uh, report and the female partner's report. So this doesn't require IVF. It just gives you uh, more information so that you can go into your pregnancy prepared and understand, okay, if we're at elevated genetic risk, we have this option to go through IVF to mitigate uh, that risk, but we also have a lot of other mitigation strategies that we can pursue, right? Lifestyle changes, um, nutrition changes, preventative st- screening, monitoring biometrics. So the couple report is for any couple is planning on conceiving, regardless of whether or not um, they're considering IVF versus the embryo report, which is the second side of the product is for couples who are actually you know, going through the IVF process, have embryos, and we offer the most advanced embryo screening available. I mean, are you able to determine the likelihood that a couple can get pregnant? Is anyone even looking at that? Because I know some couples are just, they just can't have kids for some reason. They try for 10 years. Has anyone looked into the factors that govern that? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so there are a few few genes that are uh, correlated with infertility, but for the but for the vast majority of of cases, it's either male factor or female factor. So basically, if if you look at fertility testing specifically, that's something that you should you know go talk to a reproductive endocrinologist about. That's not orchids focus. Orchids focus is on genetic susceptibility or genetic predisposition to the most prevalent diseases. So things like you know, cancers, heart disease, diabetes, schizophrenia, things like that. So if you're interested in understanding whether or not you and your partner can conceive, that's something you should see a reproductive endocrinologist or OBGYN about. So typically the type of testing that they'll give you there is is hormone testing. There are a few very rare genetic causes of infertility, but um, that's that's typically not the the first line uh, assessment. The first line assessment assessment is typically uh, hormone testing and um, sperm testing. So uh, if you look at sort of the causes of infertility, it's, 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 it's around a third, a third, a third. So a third of it is 
an unknown. We, we don't know what the cause is. A third is, is um, male factors so have something to do with you know, sperm count, sperm motility. And then a third is uh, female factor. So there's a, a number of things that, that fall under female factor in, infertility as well. Well, the thing is, though, if, if a couple is infertile and they have to go through IVF, uh, which it sounds like a significant percentage of your people, you know, have to go through. It, it's okay. I understand. Look at the genetic predispositions, but how does that interact with high or low hormone levels of other things being out of balance of gut dysbiosis, you know, et cetera. So if I have a 30% more likelihood of I don't know, X and my hormones are also out of whack and that's the reason I'm infertile, you know, I, I come to you, yes, I want to know about genetic predispositions, but how much of a lever do I have on a genetic predisposition to damp it down and avoid it if I balance my hormones and I do things right and I live a you know a good lifestyle? Like, Do you deal with any of that or is it just like, here's your predisposition, good luck? No, 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 no. no. We, we, we definitely don't want to, want to say here's your predisposition and good luck. We want to give you an action plan. So for, for the couple report, it's really just about, you know, cur- currently people are going to their pregnancies completely blind, right? We're getting more information about, we're doing more, we're getting more information and doing more research about the most inconsequential choices in our life, right? If you're, if you're going to lunch with a friend, you check Yelp, you check Google reviews, you make sure that you're not going to get food poisoning and that, and that, you know, it's a good place, right? So for the most inconsequential decisions, we're getting all of this data, right? But for the most consequential decision of your life, right? Having a child, you know, people aren't getting you know, the, the most basic in, information about what risks that they themselves carry and what risks they could pass on to a future child. So specifically in, in the context of, um, of IVF, you know, you're going to work with your reproductive endocrinologist to actually stimulate your, stimulate the woman's ovaries in order to extract eggs and to, and to create embryos. And once you have those embryos, you know, the, the cur- current genetic testing on embryos is really low resolution. So all it tells you is the chromosome count. So essentially, you know, the number of chapters in a book, do you have the normal number of chromosomes, or do you have an abnormal number of chromosomes? If you have an abnormal number of chromosomes, you know, there's conditions like, like Down syndrome, for example, that's trisomy 21. So being able to understand risks beyond just really low resolution data, like, okay, do you have the correct number of chromosomes is valuable in this setting? Because right now you're essentially choosing embryos based on a beauty contest. You have low resolution genetic information and then you have something called morphology which means essentially visually based on a visual inspection you know how, how do these how do these embryos look which one looks like it's going to you know be the most likely to implant so what we're what we're doing is we're layering on more information about the genetic predispositions of each of these embryos so that uh, the couple can make a more informed decision and mitigate risk for a disease that they're concerned about well again what what are they in terms of the mitigation do you give instruction on mitigation or is that you know straying into the realm of you know giving medical advice like you, you tell someone they have a predisposition, then what? How do you not just say, you know, like, here you go, like I said, that's it. Like, what, you know, I, you could do genetic counseling. Like, what are all the things you can do to help someone navigate? Yeah, so, so basically combating a genetic predisposition really varies by disease. It looks very different for, uh, you know, susceptibility to heart disease versus to diabetes versus to schizophrenia versus to Alzheimer's, right? There's there's different interventions and different uh, things that you can do. So it's, it's hard to give very general advice about, you know, overall, what, what can you do to improve your health or to um, you know, mitigate a genetic predisposition? So for, for adults, we sort of tailor it very specifically to, to the disease and to, you know, what would make so, make the most sense for that specific person based on their lifestyle. Right. If you're if you're smoking, you know, pretty much across the board, that's that's going to be you know the number one intervention you could make. If you're if you're already living a pretty healthy lifestyle, it could be monitoring biometrics or something like. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Atrial fibrillation.
which is an abnormal heart heartbeat. So if you're, you know, if you're high risk for AFib and you, you know, get an Apple watch and you're able to, you know, monitor, you know, via an EKG, that's something that would, you know, make a lot, a lot of sense for that. If you're high risk for, you know, type one diabetes or, you know, even type two diabetes, maybe, you know, investing in a continuous glucose monitor so that you can see what your insulin levels are like and how they're varying and how close you are to getting into that pre-diabetic range might make the most sense. So the intervention, you know, for the adult varies depending on what the condition is. And then on the IVF side, it's, it's essentially uh, prioritizing the embryo that's at lowest genetic risk. So every embryo inherits different pieces of DNA from each partner. So every embryo doesn't have the same level of genetic risk for a given disease. So if a couple is identified as high risk for something like schizophrenia, there's going to be variability between the embryos that they produce in terms of each embryo's propensity for disease. So through providing these reports, the couple and the clinical team can choose to implant the embryo that's at lowest risk for schizophrenia or whatever disease the couple is concerned about so that they have it's it's not obviously a guarantee that this child isn't going to you know develop this condition but rather than rolling the dice and you know perhaps inheriting the most um genetic variants that are you know that are you know that, that predispose this, this child to disease that child can inherit the fewest while still yeah basically the, the child can inherit the the lowest possible genetic risk given the, the two parents genomes but what about some other parameters that i don't know society at large may feel squeamish about you know choosing the sex only going for males, let's say, which has been done in a lot of cultures, you know, not in this method, but in other methods, you know, uh, eye color, height, things like that. I don't know if any of this can be told from genetics, but not just predispositions to disease. I mean, what other factors that really stray into like difficult ethical territory? Do even these predispositions stray into that? What, like, what are some examples of what's what's caused like difficulties in this process and what's made it successful? Yeah. So ORCID is focused squarely on disease mitigation. We're, we're not focused on, you know, any, any of these other aesthetic traits. I think that that's not really super valuable to parents. I think parents are really interested in mitigating disease risk because that's something that they've you know, typically dealt with personally or in their family. And that's really a, um, you know, a really high value use of this technology. But in terms of, you know, society at large, I think that there's a huge amount of support for, for, you know, the, the ideal that parents have of trying to give their child the best chance of a healthy life. I think that, you know, as soon as a child's born, you know, parents move mountains to make sure that their children get into the best schools, that, that they eat the best food, that parents do everything possible in order to, um, you know, help, help their child live a, live a healthy life and to, you know, improve their prospects. So it seems like a very natural extension to make sure that before they conceive, they're also setting up their child for, for success. I mean, people spend an enormous amount of time during their pregnancy, making sure that, you know, they're eating right and they're um, going to all their appointments. So I think that it's a, it's a very natural extension for most parents to say that, hey, now that this information is available, and it could benefit my my child. This is something that you know makes sense for me to do. You know, your your genetics are forever, so you don't want to have the misfortune of finding out later that you didn't gather information, and you know, basically, you you, you regret not getting information that could have prevented suffering later. Again, can can people choose the sex of their baby, or is that not even on the menu or the list, or what? Yeah. So I don't yeah, mean to make this. Like, it, it's okay if you guys don't provide it. It's okay if you do provide it. It's okay, but. I just, it, it, is it an issue or is it no big deal? You know, I don't want to take you into a place that you're uncomfortable talking about, but I just, I would guess that because the arena you're, you're working in, there would be just some possible ethical difficulties with certain things. I don't know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. So I think every country sort of handles this differently. So for example, in, um, in China and India, for example, sex selection is illegal, but in the U.S. sex selection is, uh, is, is legal. So every country sort of decides differently, you know, based on, you know, cultural norms that, 
you know, how they want to handle that. So in the US, for example, sex selection has been going on, I think, for more than 20 years. But yeah, again, that's not that's pretty uh, separate from what ORCID is doing. ORCID is focused on um, measuring, me- measuring susceptibility to disease. So that's sort of it's sort of separate from the issue of, uh, of uh, sex selection or determining the sex prior to implantation. Okay, but you don't have parents asking you about that. They're just focused in on these predispositions and that's it. Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's our focus. Okay, okay, I understand. Um, what are some of the common predispositions people have and which ones are more concerning to people versus others? Yeah, I don't think there's there's maybe like one specific um, disease that people are most interested in. I think that, uh, you know, heart disease is, is very common. Schizophrenia is something that people are, are dialed into because there's, you know, very few few treatments and interventions that really make a difference. Cancers, I mean, people deal with cancers, you know, very personally. And that's something that that, that is typical that they're typically very activated about. But I, I think it, it really varies from, from person to person and family to family what disease that they're really concerned about. I think that, you know, sometimes it's surprising people think that, oh, a disease like atrial fibrillation or inflammatory bowel disease is, you know, not a big deal. But uh, if you talk to the people who are actually affected by it and, you know, how much they've had to modify their, their lifestyle or sort of, you know, go through a, a painful process in order to learn to manage the condition, they're, they're very excited and interested in the ability to potentially mitigate risk for that disease in their, in their future child. So I think it's, it's honestly a very personal decision. I think that, you know, if, if you give the exact same results to two different people, they'll respond to it in a very different way. Some people will say, oh, I have a you know, 10% increased predisposition to X and they'll say, Oh my gosh, that's a that's a huge amount. You talk to someone else, and they'll say, "Oh, that's you know not such a big deal." So I think it's the, the way that people respond and interpret the results is a is a very personal and uh, specific um, uh, encounter. And in terms of how Orchid handles that, we just care the most about making sure that they have access to experts. So every single one of our reports comes with a uh, genetic counselor. So every every report that we deliver comes with a genetic counselor review and uh, synchronous walkthrough. So we just want to make sure that couples really understand the data that they're getting uh, because this is this is a new fundamentally new type of information that parents have. And uh, it's just super important that they uh, understand exactly what it means. Well, I'm sure everyone's different. But I'm sure there's also themes, recurring themes. So, what, like, what do you observe? You know, I know every, again, everyone's different. Everyone says that all the time. But is there a predominance? Is there a, you know, I guess ironically, is there a propensity of people to um, react to certain predispositions differently? Or again, do, you know, what do you notice? Just anecdotally about, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen thousands of uh, of results. Like, what jumps out at you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the variability is what is what jumps out at me. I think that. Um you know, for every single parent, they just respond to this information very differently. And, um, you know, we're just really here to support them and to, um, you know, make sure that they, they understand exactly what their risks mean and, and what they can do to, to mitigate it. But I think that the, the, the dominating factor is really just how individual and, um, you know, specific these uh, responses are. And I, I don't think that there's really a general theme. I think that if there, if there was a general theme, it's that parents are just really interested in, in maximizing the health of their child and preventing them from inheriting the same diseases that, that they lived with. And that's really the motivation for all, all of these couples is sort of, is just the desire to you know, maximize the chance that their child has a healthy life and avoid the suffering that they had to go through. That's what I, that's definitely what I would say the, the dominating theme is. But in terms of interest or uh, response to specific diseases, I think that that's extremely variable, couple to couple and case by case. Well, what kind of people do you get? Do you get ones that typically have a condition and that's why they're doing this to make sure that they're, if they have a choice, that their kids won't have it? Or is it people that are just curious? Yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. I think the, the cases that I'm most excited about are, are couples where they, they lived with a, a condition and they 
were planning to, you know, not have children or adopt because they're so worried about passing on this condition. And then uh, the ability for, for ORCID and, our, and, you know, the testing that we provide and the reports that we provide to give them a little bit more confidence going through the conception process that, um, you know, they have the ability to understand what their risks are and specifically to to mitigate them. Um, so those are the, those are the probably the the stories that we're most excited about. But um, there's also co- definitely couples who you know, they don't have any family history of anything specific. They, they're perfectly healthy and they just want to know this information because um, you know they, they think it's interesting and that uh, you know they're, they're not sure what exactly they're going to find. I think that the, the other sort of category is someone who you know maybe has has a relative with the condition they don't know. Do I specifically uh, carry risk for this disease, like maybe you know they have an aunt or, or uncle that had cancer, and they want to know, okay, does it run in my family, or was it sort of a very uh, was it a red herring that it occurred in um, you know just just one specific relative? So I think that's a really exciting piece of information to provide. That hey, you know maybe you have this anxiety because you have a family member with a disease, but is it likely to affect you based on your genetics? That's something that that's that's a question that we can answer. Yeah, but how predictive are these these propensities? I mean, I've I've heard you know, from some people that it's a very low predictability. Some people say it's getting better. I mean, what's your observation? Yeah, it's actually a very complex question to answer. So it's sort of, there's, there's one aspect of it, which is just the heritability of a disease, right? So if you look at a twin study, you know, how often does someone with the exact same DNA, how often do they, you know, do they both develop the disease? Does one of them develop the disease? If you have the same, same DNA and then, you know, uh, you know, variable environments, so they could, these twins could either you know, grow up together or they could grow up separately. What's the uh, reoccurrence rate? So that gives you some measure of, okay, how genetic is this condition? So looking at the 10 diseases on our, on our panel, there's, there's a, there's, there's a variable amount of heritability there, right? So schizophrenia, for example, is, you know, many twin studies measure the heritability at, at close to 80%. So that's maybe one of the more heritable conditions. In contrast, if you some, look at something like type two diabetes, you know, the heritability is certainly there, but there's also a lot more of an impact based on lifestyle factors. So things like, you know, your weight and your diet and your exercise levels. So it, it, it's, it's, there's not really a one size fits all answer. So every disease has a different amount of, of a genetic component to it. Basically, how much does genetic genetics play a role in developing the disease versus how much does your does your lifestyle or environmental factors uh, contribute to your risk for the disease so there's there's not really a a, um, a concise way to, to answer the question but essentially what's really miraculous or exciting that's happened over the last you know three or four years is that finally we have data set sizes that are large enough where we can actually measure risk much more accurately than before so now that we have hundreds of thousands of individuals who both you know have the disease and have a specific disease, like let's say heart disease versus um, who are healthy, who don't have the disease, we can actually develop models that much more accurately stratify individuals and say, okay, this is a cohort of people based, they have, you know, they have these, these set of variants and they're expected to get the disease at four times the average rate or five times the average rate or three times the average rate. So that's what's really exciting about polygenic risk scores is, is this idea that finally we're able to actually quantify and measure the genetic component of risk. So, you know, genetics aren't uh, destiny, unfortunately. It's not like if you have a certain gene, then you're destined to get a specific disease, but genetics do play a role and impact risk for every disease. So that's, what's, that's, what's, that's what we're able to do is we're able to say, hey, here's a genetic component of risk. Let's quantify it and provide that to you so that you can understand, you know, how, how much you should, how much of a predisposition and how you should, you know, how much you should prioritize making interventions to combat or counteract the uh, predispositions that you may have. What are you noticing again, since you looked at so many people, uh, there are certain predispositions that are coming up more frequently. I don't know if, you, you know, you haven't been doing this for 20 years, but otherwise I would ask you what's changed. But uh, again, what, what seems to be on the rise or what seems to be far more prevalent than you, you know, that surprises you? 
that, you know, certainly diabetes is, is, is on the rise in the U S I think, you know, globally as well. Um, I think that that's probably, you know, there's definitely um, lifestyle factors that are contributing there. Right. I mean, the U S is, uh, unfortunately an extremely sedentary society. So, um, you know, that's something that, uh, is, is totally in everyone's controls to basically say, Hey, I want to get more active. I want to lose weight. I want to, you know, monitor my glucose levels. But at the same time, there's, there's some folks who are you know, genetically predisposed to, to, to diabetes and, and, and it's very difficult for them to lose weight. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to know which category that you're in that, okay, is it the case that I, uh, you know, based on my genetics, I'm, I'm expected to have a really hard time losing weight. I just have a, you know, extremely slow metabolism where interventions that I make aren't going to have as much of an, of an effect, or am I in that category where, you know, my genetics aren't predisposing me to this disease. So interventions that, that I make are likely to make a, you know, I'm likely to face less resistance, um, you know, internally and that, and those interventions are more more likely to, um, you know, result in a good outcome. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Nora, what's the best way for people to, to find out more and to talk to Orchid Health and to, uh, you know, to evaluate whether you can help them or not? Yeah, so you can check us out on orchidhealth.com and uh, sign up for our waitlist for either our couple report or for our embryo report. Okay. Well, very good. So just orchidhealth.com is the best way. And uh, any anything in the in the near future, next year or two that you're coming out with, that you have cooking in the kitchen, you know, any interesting stuff coming? Yeah, so our couple report is uh, live right now. You you can get access to it pretty soon. And then in Q4 of this year, so close to December, we're going to be releasing the uh, Embryo report. So that's the, the, the main exciting thing that we're working on this year. Okay, very good. Well, Nora, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.